0: for leading us today. Uh, the, the songs we sang of today, as I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm like, it's, it's like we work on the same staff. You, they're, they're out of this text. And sometimes you can sing a song that's just catchy, right? Like there are songs that are just catchy. I remember some from my childhood that made me want to buy certain cereal or, or things like that. They're not true, they're catchy. But in this, in something different happens when we sing words to great music that's founded in Scripture. That's, that's not catchy. That's just truth. And it soaks into a different part of where we are. And so part of what we're doing today is we're exploring from the text what we just sang. To say that what we just sang, that was not an emotional experience. That's a spiritual experience where our emotions might have matched In the same space, but this is something that God's doing. This is the the last week in our series called Emmanuel. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been forming a sentence. We've never done this before, but we've been forming a sentence throughout the series. The sentence goes like this. Emmanuel is God with us, imminent in power, in pursuit, in person, and then now in glory. And each week, we've looked at one of these topics. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Jamel talked about that he was in person, that Jesus came in flesh like us, and how radical that idea is, that he was incarnate, that he put on flesh and experienced life as we do, and how much comfort we can draw from the fact that he he knows what we're going through. He knows the, the... Trials and the suffering and the circumstances, the temptation. He knows that not just theoretically, but he knows it practically because he experienced it because he wore flesh. And there's great comfort that I draw from that. And so last week we spent talking about the fact that he's fully human, and this week we're looking at the fact that he's fully God. This is that Emmanuel came to us then and now. In glory. And glory is a is a kind of a weird word. Like I I spent hours looking for a great definition of glory. Every theologian has a different definition, slightly different. Here's, Here's kind of my version of what everybody's saying. Glory is the sum of all that God is. It's the totality of what God is. There's a there's a and it's the totality of who God is, what God is, and our response to that, our experience of that. Because our experience is limited, right? That song, glory to glory to glory. We understand a fullness of God's glory today. Hopefully next year, the week before New Year's Eve when we gather, we experience a fuller picture of God's glory and more and more and more until we see him face to face. That's what this is, right? So our experience of him does matter in this definition because it adds a a limit that is not present to God, but it is present to our experience of him. So there's a a physical part to it. There's the majesty, the beauty, the awe to God. I, I don't physically, I've never seen God physically, like I'm seeing George right now, but there is an awe and a glory that I experience when I look at his creation. Where I experience God's glory when I, when I see, like particularly when I go west, and I see the mountains, and I see the ocean. And there's like this controlled violence to creation out there that I, I'm just awe-inspiring. It's so powerful and majestic, and that is God's glory. But his glory is also these attributes that we love. His glory, mercy, is in his glory. Justice is in his glory, goodness is in his glory. So the experience of what we have of God is his glory. Does that make some sense? Okay, so when we're talking about it, we're not talking about this out there weird concept that we don't really have a definition of. When we're talking about glory today, I want you to think of that, the the totality of who God is, this awe-inspiring wonder. And like when God's glory was revealed to his people, They would be like Moses' face, like had a glow to it. People wanted to never leave the mountain again. All of this because he's so beautiful, awe-inspiring. I want you to think on that. So let's go through Hebrews 1-3 together. Hebrews 1-3 begins by saying that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory. Now, Hebrews is written to a people who had a very high view of God and a, a semi-confused view of who Jesus was. I think some of us can relate to this in this way. They, they knew that Jesus took on flesh, so they wondered, is it Jesus and then angels and then God the Father? Like, where does the rank happen? Where are priests? How does all of this work out? Where does Jesus matter? How can Jesus be fully man and fully God? It's a question we all have, right? We see it right here. He is the reflection of God's glory. But in this, it matters how we understand too. I remember not, not long ago, I was driving in the car and I was with a friend and my friend said, hey, the moon is very bright tonight. They said that because the moon was very bright that night, but the moon doesn't have any light. We know that, right? So it's really the sun reflected off the moon was very bright that night. Sometimes we think of Jesus this way. As if the Father's glory bounces off of Jesus and then we get that. No, that's not what this is. That's not the reflection of God's glory. Jesus is fully God. He has his own glory. When he put on flesh, it was a little bit hidden. It was a little veiled is the word that Scripture uses when he went to the Mount of Transfiguration, then that moment his glory was revealed, that was not a, the sun reflected off the moon, that was Jesus in the totality of who Jesus is. Jesus bears almost this double glory. In there we see the glory of Jesus as fully God and we also get a glimpse of who the Father is. We have the full glory of Jesus and oh yeah, maybe God the Father is good Maybe he is merciful. Maybe he is just. Does that make some sense? So this reflection is not like borrowed glory. This reflection is much more to a people who saw a high view of God the Father saying, hey, that same glory that you see in God the Father is the glory that we see in Jesus now. Yes. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John 1, 9, where the the light enlightens everyone. This is the glory of Jesus that we see. This is the full glory within him. And then here in in Hebrews 1, he goes on, and, and the author writes that not only is Jesus the reflection of God's glory, but the exact imprint of God's very being. Now, why does this matter? I think we have some of the same questions that they had at this time. I've talked to people who said, okay, did the father... Create the Son, because we use like Father-Son language. It was the Father first? And the Son was made for the Father, or, or made by the Father. And the truth is, no, they're the exact imprint. The the Father is, is the same as the Son. There was never a time when there was a Father and not the Son. There was never a time where the Trinity wasn't the Trinity. They didn't call it that in Scripture, but there was never a time when God was not whole. There was never a time when God was not all that God is, and so Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father because, well, they're one and the same. Does that make some sense? These things, it might seem like we're just getting lost in these theological, this stuff matters because we end up with a really sloppy understanding of who Jesus is. We end up with a really sloppy understanding thinking like Jesus is just my buddy, who wants to sit in my stuff with me and we lose sight of the fact that he is kind enough to call me friend, enter into my stuff to call me out of it. And so we need to really rid ourselves of some of this sloppy stuff, even though it seems like maybe an intellectual exercise when we're all on break. I understand, but stick with me, okay? Okay, so the third thing here, and please read this verse when you go home too, chew on this some more we're going a little bit fast but he is a reflection of God's glory and he has the exact imprint of God's very being and then get this one and he sustains all things by his powerful word last week if you're here pastor Jamel talked about in John 1 Jesus is the word and everything was created with the word, with Jesus' word, right? Everything was created. Here's here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Not only is everything created by the word, by the powerful word, but Jesus sustains everything. This is really important to us. Now, when, when the author of Hebrews writes this, they do not mean that he sustains everything like delays everything, or like has everything cooking in the oven. That's not the point. He sustains everything and carries out God's plan to conclusion. That's what we need to see. Jesus' words begin everything and sees everything through to conclusion. He's not like me. I have great intents. Great intents. This book is filled with lists of things that I should have done. And like maybe half of them are are marked off and i can sometimes like even keep the list and i can move it around with me and i can i can do some things but i have extreme limits yes. just ask my children but jesus is something other right is the glory of god fully revealed and so jesus knows the plans of god and sees them through sustains them all to conclusion So what does this mean? Why is this so important? Because Jesus is the spoken word of every promise given to us in the scripture. Every promise is the word of God. Jesus speaks these promises to us, but then he doesn't leave or switch character. He speaks the promise, sustains the promise, and stays with us, Emmanuel, with us to conclusion. And he's not just weak sitting next to us. He's powerful. He has all the means necessary to see that to conclusion. I think this matters to us, or else we don't get it. So, the name that Jesus had... That people were told to call him was Emmanuel, right? We've been talking about this. God with us. Does he ever change? Does God ever change? No, he never changes. So today, it's about to be 2019, but it's not yet. We are right here on December 30th, and he is God with us. And he began as that, and right now he's sustaining that, and he will be that until conclusion. I want you to think through the things that we talked about, and we're going to do this a little bit slow. The first week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is God with us, imminent, that he's in everything. We looked at Bethlehem and how Bethlehem was named and had this identity as this place of just sorrow and pain. And Jesus was not intimidated or afraid to enter into that. And he's eminent in everything. Wherever you are sitting, Jesus is God with you, eminent in the middle of everything. And he will be as he sustains you and brings that to conclusion. Not only that, but he's in power. Pastor Jamel talked about entering into Jerusalem and, and how Jesus was not intimidated by those in political power but he came bringing another kingdom, and and he wasn't afraid of what it looked like or any of that. He just strolled in on a little baby donkey because he knew who he was. You know, the the people who are confident in who they are aren't really worried about time or looks or any of that kind of stuff because they know what's going to happen. That's what we have with Jesus. I think he slow-walked that one. And this Jesus who is all-powerful has not changed. And those promises that he's placed on your life, he spoke them into being, and he is now sustaining them until they reach conclusion, right? It's not only imminent and in power, but he's in pursuit. Some of us need to be reminded of this. Some of us have came to Jesus 10 times, and then we're afraid over and over again. We're afraid over and over again that he's, he's going to give up on us because we've ran, because we've broke promises, because we are not faithful. It's not based on us being faithful. It's based on him being faithful. And so he was in pursuit of you. He promised to be in pursuit of you. He is still in pursuit of you. And that will be true until it reaches conclusion. That is who he is. Some of us need to just sit in that for the rest of today. No matter what other people tell you, You are worthy of the God most high's pursuit. And he'll move heaven and earth to get to you. So that you know that you are made in his image. Imminent, in power, in pursuit, and in person. Some of you, I, I know the struggles of a few of you. And I've had had people even in the last two weeks come to me and say, hey, here's what I'm going through and expecting me to say, oh, that's really nothing. Let me give you perspective. Reality is, no, it's a lot. What you're facing is actually a lot. It would make you tired. It would make you feel like being anxious and, and living in that anxiety forever and being defined by that. I get it. Here's the beauty. Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, came in person, put on the flesh, knows what we're going through because he went through it. Had so much, we don't talk about this, had so much anxiety and nervousness over the future that he sweat blood. I think some of us misunderstand that. Don't be anxious about anything and think that it is a sin to feel anxious for a moment. No, that's not what it's talking about. Don't don't be defined by that anxiety. Don't just go to that anxiety and live there. You will feel anxious, and that's the time to approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's the time to trust in the fact that God is man Jesus is Emmanuel in person next to you, who knows what you're going through, who sympathizes and has promised has promised that he'll give you a burden that's not too heavy to carry. And he promised that and will sustain it until it's completed. Does that make some sense? This Emmanuel is one, Hebrew says, has all things by his powerful, he sustains all things by his powerful word. So what, what feels out of control? In your life right now, what feels out of control? What is it that where you need to be reminded that he is a sustainer? What feels insecure, unstable? Where you need his spirit to remind you that he is not just sustaining you for sustaining's purpose, but until it's complete. Where is it in your life? As as we're going through this, this is a participatory thing. Like be praying to a spirit that, oh, this is the area. I, I feel you tugging on me. This is where I'm feeling insecurity that I can submit to you. Where you've already promised and maybe I can believe that you're exactly who you said that you are. And the writer of Hebrews goes on. It says, when he had made purification of sins. I love that this is just like a casual frit. When he'd made purification of sin, let's just move on from that. That's a really big deal that he made a way for us to be purified of our sin. And I realize that our way around this is to just normalize sin. Our way around this is just to like not realize the impact of our sin. The impact of our sin is unbelievable i mean you see it all around the, this community this world the, the way the way that we see well hey, things are going i mean george talked about it seemed to seem to be going dark and and evil well that's that's sin that's my sin that's our sin but it's not just our impact on the world our impact on god we don't we don't realize the impact that that has a big part of god's glory is his holiness his holiness, which means he's completely other. He's completely different than sin. Let me try to explain it to you this way. When I, my, my mom's in, in, in the house, which is great. You guys are so sweet. But growing up, she can tell you, I hated raisins. Hate, this is going somewhere, I promise. I hated raisins. Now, I don't know if you've ever hated raisins in your life. But everyone you ever meet, their goal is to get you to like raisins. I don't know why. But people will be like, oh, you've never had raisins this way. And like, no, I haven't because I hate them. (laughs) Oh, but if you had them in my something, no, you don't get it. And they give you a chocolate chip cookie that is not chocolate chip. And they're like, did you like it? No, because you lied. That's why people don't trust Jesus. They think he's like you. And people will constantly like, try to trick you and say, well, you must like raisins. Well, as soon as I left my mother's house and went to college, I decided on a brilliant strategy. I would tell the world I was allergic to raisins. And I did. And if you're allergic, people leave you alone. So I would sit there popping grapes saying that I'm allergic to raisins. Nobody figured it out. But the texture of a raisin is disgusting. Don't trick me. I'm allergic. Now, I used to say that until I actually had a food allergy. Oh, I'm telling you. We go to Ethiopia, there's this bread that is on everything made of teff flour. My body utterly rejects teff flour. If it sees teff flour, I just reject it. It's not a preference. It's it's a I cannot be anywhere near teff flour. Now you give me trail mix with raisin juice in it, I'm not going to like it. I'm going to know that there was raisins in there and you picked it out and you're trying to trick me, but I can still eat the raisin. You give me a plate of something that has a powdering of teff flour, my body will tell you shame on you. I am I'm I cannot be in the same space as that kind of flour. It seems silly. I've tried to be around it, but I cannot be in the same space. I do not like raisins. They're kind of gross, kind of icky. I mean, they just, they look like depressed fruit. But flour, I cannot be anywhere near it. It can be next to my favorite food. It can be in the same area code as it. It doesn't even have to be wrapped up in it, but if there's a bit of teff flour in that food, my body will know and my body will violently react. Right. Yeah. We, way too often, because Jesus came and put on flesh, act like Jesus just doesn't like raisins. Oh, that's right. That's right. Your sin, as cute as you think it is, is not a raisin. Yeah. Our cultural sins, yeah. Our way of excusing individuality, where we just think we can live as islands on our own, our own love of stuff is not just a raisin. It is teff flour that God is violently reacting to. Now, what do I do? I avoid any. Any food that's anything like teff flour. What does our good Messiah do? What does Emmanuel do? He comes and eliminates the power of the teff flour. That's what he did. He came and eliminated the power of death and sin. He said, "I am violently opposed to that, but my people are filled with it, and so let me take away the power that is in." My people in my children so that they can just be my children again. That's what this this is. He made he had made purification for sins. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us and took the power of sin away. Now, here's a very real question for us. Why do we keep putting the power of sin back in it? Why do we keep giving sin its power? When Jesus came, took that away, and said, now you can be filled with my spirit, why do we keep saying, yeah, but I did this, I must be defined by it? No, he took that away. He took it away. This purification of our sin is, what did he do after that? Well, Hebrews says that uh, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He just took a seat. To us, I don't know that that means much. I sit all the time. In this day, you sit down when the job is completed, when it's finished. Later, Hebrews talks about that the priests do daily offerings and they're always standing. And then Jesus does this one offering and he takes a seat because his job is finished, it's completed. All that he had put on flesh to accomplish, he has now accomplished, and now he's seated in authority. But here's a very real question: <clears throat> If it's all finished, what's all this? If the power of sin is conquered, what is all the? Why, why is there so much pain? When I look out here, why are there so many people impacted by disease or effects of other people's sin or their own sin? Why, why are there cultural divides? All the, why, why is this still happening? Because it's not fair to bring us to this point without really talking pastorally about what, why, why do we face this? Why is it so hard then? I was, I was reading about an old war because I'm weird. Uh, I was reading about a war the war of 1812 which there was a peace treaty signed on december 24th 1814 so it started 1812 they fight for a couple years peace treaty is signed december 24th of 1814 in england now the war was fought on what is now us soil and this is pre twitter so when this is signed you don't have like news outlets right We forget this, that the world existed before we did. And so, at the time, word had to travel from England all the way to what's now U.S. soil to tell people to stop fighting. Two weeks after the treaty was signed, there was what is known as the Battle of New Orleans. And England came with this massive multi-front attack to take New Orleans and transform the city of New Orleans. If you know the story of New Orleans, historically, this city is beat up wave after wave after wave, sometimes from people, sometimes from actual waves, all of this. It is a defeated, beaten city that has this culture that's rising out of it to get hit by another storm. To ri- I mean, it is just over and again. One of the biggest waves it ever faced was this British Army coming, marching at it, In early 1815, on the U.S. side, there were pirates fighting, there were current slaves fighting, there were vigilantes fighting. It was this mix of people fighting on the U.S. side. They ended up being able to fight off the British and protect what was known as New Orleans at the time. Both armies turned up into Alabama, fought for another two weeks hundreds upon hundreds of casualties along the line. And finally, they get to Alabama, a full month after the treaty is signed, and word comes that you can stop fighting now. Ironically, they do. They get word, and they're like, oh, okay. See you later. Kind of part ways, but there's a month of casualty before peace is finally reached. I really believe that this is the time we were born into. You and I, we were born into this time where this war against sin and death is over, but the battle still goes on. And much of your pain, much of my pain is because of this, because it's already finished, but it's not yet realized, right? The, the war is already over, but there's still some casualties here. And in this time, we wonder, is God really on the throne? Is Jesus really who he said he is? Can't he just send out like a mass text? Like what is going on here? Is it just about the news of victory that we're waiting for? But I want you to know it's not just news of victory that we're waiting for. It's much more about God's glory and his character. Peter writes it this way. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness. But he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Word is still traveling. Battles are still being fought, but it's not because God is not good. It's not because God is not powerful. It's not because he's not holy. It's not because of limits on God. It's because God is actually patient. For some of us, he's too patient. He wants his children to come home. He wants his daughters and his sons. And if you've ever had a daughter or a son outside of your home, you, your door is not really locked until they're inside. You don't really close up the house until everybody's home. And unfortunately, there are casualties in the meantime. Unfortunately, there's pain in the meantime. I believe that Christ feels sorrow over that. But he's willing to wait for his children to come home. I know some people have seen that as a a sign that God is is mean or he's angry. I think that is a definition that he is loving and he's merciful, that he might wait for you. He might wait for me. He might wait for those that we love to realize who they are. If that means I ache a little bit longer, then I ache a little bit longer because I know that he sustains until conclusion. But like we, we sang, until we see him face to face, we'll sing hallelujah. And as we wait... For every battle to be finished since the war is over. As we wait for peace to happen. As we long for daughters and sons to come home. As we wait for his promise, we have a job to do. And I want to read this to you. It's, It's in Romans 8. For those of you who are suffering right now. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Here's the thing. Paul's not minimizing your suffering. He's just understanding the glory. We need to know this. He's not minimizing what you're going through. He's not belittling you. He's not being like Job's friend. He, he's not saying, I'll oh, get over it. He's not saying any of those things. Your suffering is real. What he's saying is maybe your understanding of glory is about to make a jump. Maybe there's more that is yet to be revealed as we go from glory to glory to glory. And if that doesn't provide you enough security in this moment, let's try this. Well, let me find it. Here we go. For those of you who are living in this in-between who are aching and ready to see him face to face, he writes, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship? Some of you are living in hardship. Does it separate you from his love? Is it bigger than his love? That hardship might be real, but his love is bigger. Or distress. Try persecution. Famine. Famine nakedness or peril or sword, can any of those things, though I don't wish any of it on you, can any of those separate you from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul writes, as someone who has experienced much more suffering than I have, he writes, for I am convinced that neither death nor life in pursuit, in person, and in glory. So some of you are sitting with some very real suffering, some real ache. We don't want you to have to sit alone. So we're going to have some ministers up front. If you want someone to pray with, please come forward and pray with them. Right, Right now they're coming forward. Some of you are, are the daughters and sons that God is being patient for, that he is waiting for. Some of you have, have said, okay, I know of Jesus, but it's time to put my faith, my trust in who Jesus is. We invite you to come forward and pray with one of our, one of our leaders here. But some of you just need to remember that his promises are sustained until completion. Pray with one of of our leaders here. Pray with the person next to you. Pray as you sing this last song. But I invite all of us, let's respond to what it is that God's doing in our hearts, okay? Let me pray with you here.